Welcome to the first episode of Astronomics. I'm Eric, and as always, I'll be joined with my co-host Hugh. Today we're going to cover the return of the United States' ability to send manned spacecraft into orbit, and how this is going to set the foundation for the whole series. Thank you for joining us on this endeavor. Hi everyone, Eric here. Before we start our first episode, I want to take a moment to talk about Hugh and I's background. I'm a public sector labor economist who currently works as the CFO of a medium-sized city. Hugh has a background in banking, marketing, and he's a current law student. The reason we started this podcast was to take some of the principles and ideas that we use and we learn and we see and apply them to something that we find absolutely fascinating, which is space. Okay, Hugh, as we covered in the introduction, today we're going to be talking a lot about manned spaceflight and NASA's return to sending astronauts into orbit. So for the first time, NASA has sent men, men and women into space not using a publicly developed spacecraft. This is, well, astronomics is going to cover a lot of off-Earth topics. And this may be the only time we talk about on-Earth products or on-Earth topics. Um, I personally love this topic. I've always loved manned spaceflight. Uh, I really do love NASA. I think they're like 25 years ahead um, when it comes to technology. It, you know, we have a lot of cool technology right now. Moore's Law certainly has, you know, reared its head in that we just keep developing better and better and better technology from AI to hardware. Uh, but I really do still believe NASA's probably 25 years ahead of us. Um, how do you feel about that, Hugh? Where, where do you see the benefit of, or cost, of domestically developed space travel solutions, whether it be public or private, the interplay between the two? What's your thoughts on that? Hello, Earthlings, first off. Uh, I think that the private solutions or the private companies getting involved in space travel um, is a pretty exciting prospect that uh, you're going to see more and more coverage of uh, as time goes on. Exciting when you look at companies like SpaceX or Jeff Bezos' company, Blue Origin, there's obviously... Uh, some exciting players and uh, personalities in the development of private space flight. So it's going to be uh, a really cool time to, to live in and experience um, because you're going to, for the first time, uh, see the, the personalities of the market just just show, rear their head. Whereas previously you saw um, it was that it was a purely governmental endeavor and um, certainly which is lent itself to exciting moments of its own. I, I, I recall John F. Kennedy saying, um, we choose to do these things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard, um, which is obviously full of drama and theater. But- uh, If you think how crazy that is, some guy in like 1960, be like, we're gonna go to the moon. It's like, dude, the Wright brothers like 57 years ago just came up with this flying contraption. Now we're gonna leave Earth? Like, I'll tell you a funny story. Um, my grandfather uh, grew up in rural West Virginia, and uh, his father was a principal. And uh, my grandfather was always a great science man. He ended up graduating college before he was 20 with a degree in chemistry before he joined the Corps. But growing up, he had this favorite magazine, a favorite comic book. And I could I could tell you, I really wish I could have the name of it. And he used to, he used to read it, and it had about this guy flying to the moon. Now, he would reread it all the time because they grew up in poor rural West Virginia. 
And uh, his dad used to always say, jokingly, not mean, would be like, oh, I mean, that's insane. That's never going to happen. And you think of it, like, you think how crazy it was because his, his father was probably born in the 1880s. That's when, you know, it was the 1870s they were talking about canals on Mars. So granted, that was a mistranslation from the Italian astronomer. But they thought there was, like, mar canals on Mars and on the moon. That was, like, you know, there's moon people and Martians, whatever you want to call them. So, like, that must seem crazy to somebody 50, 60 years later, my grandfather's father, being like, we're not going to go to the moon. Like, we still don't even understand so many things. So he remembers calling his father in 1969, being like, oh, I guess we got there. Which has to be the longest labor period of I told you so. One of the longest in human history. I mean, just by pure mathematics. Like, uh, but no, it, it, it's enchanting. And you, you are really right. It, it, is, it is super just, I find it fascinating. And I'm going to complete 180. Is it still watchable t television? I think that it should be. But um, unfortunately, for whatever reason, I think this theme is addressed in the, uh, the, the Tom Hanks film, Apollo 13. In that, for some reason, uh, we the, there hasn't seemed to be a successful initiative to actually market all this, like what should be the excitement of the human endeavor to blast off in outer space. Uh, I maybe it's because I'm a nerd. I don't know that this is exceptional or not. I can name you know one or two astronauts that have been on the International Space Station recently. But really, these people should be really more celebrated, more forward-facing. Um, shout out Scott Kelly, uh, you know, for your, your longevity in space. God bless you. Um, and, I mean, it's such a spectacle that you would think that, uh, and I, this is going to be a, a barb in your direction, Eric, but if NASCAR is watchable, and we would love to have you as an ad advertiser as, as well. Uh, Astro-Nomics.com, NASCAR. Get on it. NASCAR, we'd love to have you as the, an advertiser. I say that, I say that again. Uh, please feel free to cut that. Um, no, but surely if that that spectacle is entertaining, then the, 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 huge, the explosive spectacle of a, a space launch and um and if a reality tv show is is stomachable uh showing the daily goings on so people and and uh you know manufactured homes in the hillsides of california surely we can see some day-to-day -day life on the space station and be engaged by it if it's delivered in the correct format you bring up a good point here about it being a spectacle if you could race, if they started racing spacecrafts, like say we got uh, Virgin Galactic, Blue Origin, and SpaceX, we put them like all like I don't know, like a few hundred yards away. It's like okay, first to orbit wins. <laughs> would that be watchable television? Oh, absolutely. I feel like it would be a lot like fantasy space travel, all in. Right. I mean, we see the we see the parallel uh, uh, in that 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 gentleman who was sponsored by Red Bull. We would love be sponsored by Red Bull. Huge um, Red Bull people. We saw that gentleman who did, uh, what is the feat known as? He he did the world, I think it's technically the world's highest skydive, or is it categorized in some other way, you know? So, it was the world free fall record, is what they were, so longest time free fall, and he, and he did beat it. He could have beaten it by even more, it was like almost five minutes, I think, about. Um, so, yeah, the, the record was, I believe, I believe, it was um, the world's longest free fall by by time I, i'm assuming time i mean humans have a terminal velocity so i'm assuming time and distance are the same but 
Ooh, we gotta bring a fist to this on for that question. We should bring a fist to this on, just hammer him on questions. Someone is like probably extremely frustrated that we missed some of the technicalities of, of what the what the record actually is. But let, let's just use that as an example of like how much um, excitement that that did generate. It, it captured. I'd say, I'd say that had the headlines, the at least the national attention for a couple of days. So if that format can work, then there is definitely a market out there for these um, these the space curiosities in um, in video format like that's what's funny about about private space is that obviously the government i like to think that the government would never debase itself in such a way as to be participating in uh you know what i mean rocket races or whatever but uh i would never put it past some powerful personalities that are entering into the space market now um you know, Elon Musk versus Jeff Bezos, the uh, the the space rocketeers. You know, and either of you, if you have any company subsidiaries that you would like to advertise on our podcast, we would welcome you. And it would, of course, it would never spoil the objectivity we have here. Um, okay, I, I I very much agree with the point that um, I don't think the government is in the business of advertising itself like that. Though it is really interesting if you listen to some of the... Uh... NASA has a good logo. Probably, oh, NASA! I think the best logo in government, which is uh, has some good logos. Oh, it's a top logo, um, definitely. I think the Marine Corps has a solid logo. Um, trying to think of other departments. I think there's some... Okay. There's so few federal government so bureaus. <laughs> okay. Okay. There, there are some minimalistic logos I'm a big fan of. U.S. Department of Energy has a pretty fire logo. But this is a podcast of logos. You you can find a uh, humanized podcast on federal government logos at logos-nomics.com. Yeah. <laughs> um, all right. So I want to bring up a point about that gentleman who broke that free fall record. My favorite part of that story is the next story after that, which some dude inflated a weather balloon, went up to beat that dude. I don't know if he beat the guy in height, but I know he beat him in free fall time, which, let's be honest, is the more badass thing to do. You hear that story that that guy, the, the sponsored Red Bull guy, got beat short, like, sub, sub, very subsequently after. Yeah. And you just hear that story and be like, you know what? Life's not all bad. Yeah. Like, that, that's that's amazing that that guy, like, he, he got upstage so quickly after, after all the pomp and circumstance, that he got upstage by, like, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm assuming Joey Chestnut. Yeah. In the, <laughs> in the hot dog eating contest beat him. I don't know. Yeah, I mean... First off, anybody who is buying that much helium in weather balloons, um, I respect. I also respect I, the fact it wasn't more of a spectacle. Like some guy at the helium shop wasn't like calling somebody like, yeah, I don't know what this guy's doing. Uh, flying into the like, stratosphere and dropping. Um, I'm a big history buff. And one of my favorite, as you are too, Hugh, one of my favorite stories is uh, the first man to, to leave the troposphere. Um, he went up in a weather balloon and he was about 97,000, 100,000 feet. He jumps out. So he gets him, he's in this big pressurized suit. And uh, he's actually technically the first man to, to break the sound barrier that we know of. Um, there are some people who think, and this is very off topic and somewhat morbid. Go for it. Go for it. Is uh, when they were testing the, um, the Messerschmitt Comet during World War II, during some of the failed takeoffs, that would go up. It would, you know, the tail would give out, so it would go straight up. And then come crashing down, accelerating. It's very believed those are the first people to actually break the sound barrier. But the first person we know... That's heartbreaking. Not only does it break the sound barrier, that is heartbreaking. Oh, oh I mean, this, we could... we could, yeah. 
test pilot, a, a big um, celebrator of test pilots. Uh, to bring just to bring up another another name uh, is uh, the comedian Bill Burr. Actually, he's a helicopter pilot, and he frequently, or, or I, I mean, yeah, he is, and he he he, he trains uh, in it or to or take you know goes to uh, just takes lessons in it. But uh, he is often oft to celebrate the. Uh, the works of pioneering aviators yeah. because they have to test the limits of safety with new technology and there will be a new generation of pioneering aviators and interstellar travelers that are going to be testing these technologies and going to sacrifice a lot for the safety of um, future generations of um, uh, John Adams what's John Adams' favorite word uh, progeny progeny <laughs> yeah, yeah progeny yeah um, no you bring a good point there Hugh um, I love, I mean, test pilots are some, I mean, Armstrong was a test pilot that, that he flew the, you know, a plane that traveled Mark four, Mark five and just the, so that point when he was flying that plane, one of the last flights he did in it, he, you know, went so fast that when he actually came down the atmosphere, he skipped like a rock. So he ended up not, he ended up having to skirt over LA, go over the water and come back around. He landed in a emergency, uh, riverbed, even flying that the first lunar module. They built these two test lunar modules that had all this, I mean, this is the 60s, this is crazy, all these computer guidance systems to make them feel as moon-like as they could from a gravitational standpoint. And there's videos of him ejecting out of it and before they burst into flames. I mean, these are only 30, 40 feet off the ground. And there's a very famous video of him ejecting out of this, and uh, he lands, brushes himself off, and he just like, goes back and has lunch. And they asked him, they were like, Neil. Like, how do you reconcile that? And I'm paraphrasing right now. And he was just like, it's part of the process. I, you know, I actually have a very good friend I went to college with who's currently uh, a test pilot. And I've talked to him about it, and I've read tons of stuff on test pilots. I'm very much in your camp and Bill Burr's camp, how amazing that is. But how they just shake stuff off, like how nothing freaks them out. Like, it's such a unique individual, and I, to be able, that we rely on to get like can they podcast. I can they? That is... I'm going to go and say I'm Neil Armstrong, all in that he can podcast. But like Alan Shepard, I don't think comes on as podcaster. No. Ooh, sorry. <laughs> Alan Shepard has, has... Shout out. <laughs> Alan Shepard has uh, maybe my favorite quote of all time. He's on this big repurposed ICBM, all right, getting ready to launch into space. He said, all I could think about is that every piece of the rocket below me was built by the lowest bidder. <laughs> There is a, and that to me speaks, that to me speaks to like the, you know, just the ability these, these people have to deal with that, to deal with these, you know, the forces it takes literally and figuratively to be a pilot and to be a space pilot. Um, I I especially sympathize with just being able to march through the day with that level of cynicism and still go about your, doing your duty. That's incredible. Uh, (laughs) Uh, God, you know, cynics bad, get a bad rap. Um, there's a very Hel- there's a Hellenistic philosopher, uh, as you know, the cynic, and he, I, I actually really love reading him. I'm a big Marcus Aurelius, Aurelius guy. I love Stoicism. Who is him? I, I, I think I have it on my bookshelf here. You know, cynicism and Stoicism, which are very different. Don't get me wrong, but of all these great people, Zeno, the uh, cynic, which actually became Zeno the Stoic later in his career, Marcus Aurelius. Um, Epicurus. I think there's one person we need to talk about the importance of negative thought, and that is Bobby Knight. 
who wrote a book called The Power of Negative Thought. Um, I'm not joking with you. That is an actual book that exists. Bobby Knight, the guy who threw a chair as a Hoosiers coach. Oh, of course. That, that does make sense. The power of negative. Yeah, he did, he did uh, have some, uh, some outlashes that were, <laughs> were clearly must have come from a place of negativity. I mean, it just, it, and I know in this podcast, we're going to really start exploring stuff off Earth. And, you know, maybe we're going to talk a lot about individual behavior. I mean, we're going to talk about economics. We're going to talk about law. We're going to talk about business. These are individual behaviors. But I think what's important that we consider, these are still individuals. I had, a, I had a great mentor in economics when I was going through college, one of the best mentors you could ever have. And he taught me that, you know, when you analyze something, when you look at a poverty rate or an unemployment rate, remember, a poverty rate is somebody who doesn't know where their next meal is coming from. Unemployment is a, is a person looking for a job who doesn't have one, who wants one. Um, remember, when you analyze these things, so these are real people. So we're going back and forth right now, joking around, talking about, you know, these guys, these, these, you know, these people who are just, I mean, almost fictional giants in terms of how, what the stress they're able to handle. But these weren't supermen. These people faced, you know, they were able to put aside just human fear. Like, I'm terrified of heights. These guys are leaving Earth's atmosphere. Like, it's, it's, it's the same thing to me. It's even greater than, like, the first person to climb, climb Mount Everest, the or, you know, the first person to, to get to the South Pole. Um, it's really a whole different breed of human that can handle that type of stress. I know I couldn't. I think I handle stress pretty well, but I could never. I mean, just just the thought of sleeping in space is crazy to me. It's just crazy. What is something even crazier? The first space capsules, or sorry, return capsules used by the Soviets, like uh, Yuri Gagara uh, returned in. They had ejection seats. They couldn't serve, like the landing couldn't be survived. So you actually had to eject out at like 20,000 feet. And Yuri landed in a field in like the, you know, I think it was around Kazakhstan. I, I could be wrong about that. And Yuri was only about 5'5". Five, five. He gets out, he's in a cosmonaut outfit. This is like nine, the 1950s, early 1960s. And he walks over to these two, um, this, I believe it was a mother and a young girl. And he's like, said to them, like, hello, I'm a fellow Russian. Um, I've just come from space. Can I use your phone to call Moscow? Like, what? Like, I'd be like, oh, what? no. I'm going to like lock myself in my house and get the hell out of here. Right. The, 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 I mean, it's easy for us because it's a, a, like, who, you know, you don't know. With the ejecto seats, you really just, you, I guess you just don't know what to expect. But, um, like, it's so wild that the, the, the plan, like, they've no, there, there was no plan in that situation of, like, this is where he's going to end up upon return. And, like, you know, what if he had ended up in, like, you know, what if it was a, he entered the atmosphere in the wrong place and he ended up, ended up in a, the deserts in China, you know, in western China, and, like, there was just nothing around him. Oh. Or, I guess I don't know the deserts that well in western, right, I, I suppose. Hugh, you bring up an amazing point, and it's something the Russians thought about, when they, the Soviets, should, I should say, thought about. Um, that's why all their spacecraft had English words on how to, deal with the spacecraft even the Soviet capsule um has english on it that's because the telemetry of where it can land you have the plains of kazakhstan you have the outback of russia and the other place is actually the midwestern of uh, the united states um and there's actually agreements between the united states and um the united states and russia about how to re- exchange cosmonauts so they're to be treated like civilian like civilian airline pilots and that's and um it was in it the cold war 
is one of the darkest areas in, America, in modern history. I mean, there's no getting around it. Like, we're not products of the Cold War, all right? Like, we were born in, you know, the 90s. But, you know, it's sad to think of how much, you know, good human endeavor was lost. Like, you listen to some of the cosmonauts talk about listening to Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin land on the moon. That they were praying that everything would go okay. These men weren't competitive with one another. They, they knew the pains of losing people, of, you know, the, in the Apollo missions and in the Russian missions who lost lives, that they knew that, that it wasn't, there wasn't this jingoist mentality. It was all one. And I think that's an endeavor that is a benefit of space that's beyond the economics or legal or business or whatever we're going to talk about on this podcast. Right. Probably not a good, a good plug because for the rest of the podcast. These, 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 what other, it's, you're not incentivized. You know, I don't think I really don't believe someone is willing to blast off in this space at the in the bottom of a rocket that's you know filled with fuel that could burn melt their bones and their skin like if things go wrong. Like I don't think that the, that you're doing that for financial incentive. I think what's great about space is that everyone who's ever crossed that threshold of the atmosphere has done so mostly because of passion, probably. Yeah, I mean, I do strongly agree with you. In future episodes, we're going to cover, like, the commercial viability of astronauts as sponsors for stuff. So we're going to get into we're going to get into that. But I don't think they do it for greatness. I, I would phrase that. I don't think they do that for financial gain. I think they do it for... I don't know if they do it for prestige or for individuality. I think they do it because they view it as their contribution to mankind. I mean, they're scientists. They're military men. Like, the military women. Like, they... You know, they don't get their utility solely from from a cash grab. Um, but this is kind of a topic, we, you know, one of the topics we're going to cover before the, uh, we wrap up the show is, do you think this is going to inspire, do you think it's going to bring Americans or people of the world together? Do you think, like, not just the commercialization of space, but, uh, but and that's a topic we're going to talk about, that's all forward-looking. We're going to talk about that more throughout this podcast series, but... What I'm kind of phrased to you, Hugh, is that the immediate gain. Do you think us getting back to into orbit, Americans sending Americans into space, is going to bring the country together? Uh, well, let me... Let, let me, me put you on the spot with a very, very polarizing question. Right. Uh, I'll say two things about it. I, I think it's an enticing political promise to, to a person like myself. I, if I were to hear, let's say, uh, a candidate for president, and you know, the reason I wanted to... The, the second thing that I wanted to say in, in, in response to... Whether you think that it could be a unifying influence on the country and on mankind, uh, I actually asked a question, and this is such a privilege that I encourage any listeners to take advantage of, and it can be done, accomplished so quickly. Here it is. Find out via Google search who are the astronauts that are on the International Space Station currently. Think about pose a thoughtful question that you might have for them and you can actually tweet it at them and I did so to astronaut Scott Kelly when he was on the International Space Station and admittedly he didn't respond to this one he responded to many other questions so you know just because he didn't respond to mine doesn't mean yours won't be answered but I asked him why the it's seemingly the United States and and um and, and Russia's relationship has not always has been marked by a, seemingly a greater deal of hostility in other areas 
save for space flight and, 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 and exploration and scientific research. And um, so I, as far as a, a unifying influence, I think it already is in countries that, between at least between two countries that don't always seem to uh, have the same foreign policy positions, um, oftentimes seem to be competing for, for influence. And um, it's, it's, it's actually kind of nice to see, I think, that if you want to build a relationship, at least that's a common denominator in this circumstance. And I think that that could be a common denominator, not just between the United States and Russia, but between uh, all peoples all over the world, because it's, it is, it, it's, it's, it's human achievement. And how, how can you not um, co-sign on it, you know? No, I mean, the history of why that relationship is so close is fascinating. I mean, Speaking about the current election, the future election, whatever, that I think it's a, a great beacon of hope for the, for the people of the world. And uh, it is a, an egalitarian influence, I would hope. Uh, the, the, so, I, so, I think it, so I think that while um, crises can, can bring people together, uh, also, that that kind of celebration that you, if you saw a, a huge, a great, another leap of, of mankind in, in space travel, I do think that that is a unifying moment. I, I don't know, again, I'm, I'm citing statistics, I don't know, but is, is there a more watched moment in television history than the moon landing? I'm not sure that there is. Maybe, perhaps, I think that... The cricket mass, uh, matches in India are pretty pretty heavily watched, but obviously within that one country, as far as capturing as diverse of an audience and as large of an audience as that moment probably was. I mean, to, to not here not to interrupt your train of thought, but I believe it was about a billion people watched, and the world's population was like four or five billion. So it's like twenty, not twenty five percent, like twenty percent of human beings. Twenty five. I mean, it has to be like. I get what you're saying with the cricket matches. I think right. if you look at like a top 50 most watched events of all time, I know there's a ton of cricket matches right. from India on there. And I just bring that up in the event that I'm like sorely mistaken. Like, there's also you know, just to just to check myself a bit in case I'm sorely mistaken about it being the most watched moment. I um, I also think there was like an English Premier League. It was like one of the first televised English Premier League championships, live televised mm -hmm. ones. That is like some ungodly percentage of the world population. Like I just, it's some crazy number. Uh, again, these are all going off the top of my head. So, the first space mission that involved two international bodies connecting in space, where you know the U.S. and Russia, and I should say the Soviets, shaking hands. Um, but it's interesting why the U.S. is in the Russians now, but Soviets previously have such a unique relationship. So when the Soviet Union fell. Um, the Cosmodrome in Kazakhstan that a lot of the rockets launched from felt it was going to fall into disrepair. There was no money to pay for it. And believe it or not, NASA stepped up and gave them, you know, nine figures of support, maybe even more in today's dollars, to keep them going. Because in theory, there were two cosmonauts um, up on one of the, I forget which space um, station they were up on, because the ISS wasn't completed yet. It wasn't completed until, I believe, 2003. Who are men without countries? And the U.S. stepped in and was like, hey, there's no men without countries um, in space. That's an incredibly human way to look at it. Like, no, we, we, once we leave the atmosphere, we're not 
it's humans. It's not nations. Um, so that kind of brings us to one of our closing questions, which if we look at it, it's hard to know what the future is going to hold. All right. The best marker of the future is past. Uh, I'm a big fan of Cleometrics. Uh, you know, that's economics applied to history. And Hugh and I are big history buffs. We, we just we just love history. Um, and we think this topic, astronomics, is fun to take, you know, those l lessons learned through history and apply them to what we think the future is going to be for the last frontier. Um, we look at the history of Antarctica. And Antarctica is a fascinating, um, fascinating and human endeavor. I mean, it's only reserved for science. And there was all these competing parties, uh, all this crazy machinery. Like we built crazy machinery to get into, into space. Some of the vehicles built to tame Russia, to tame Antarctica by Russia, were awesome. I mean, they were these huge track and wheel-driven vehicles that you could live in for weeks at a time. The U.S. developed similar ones, um, and then. In terms of isolation from humans, I mean, it's easier to get to the International Space Station. It's faster to get to the International Space Station than it is to get to Antarctica, the, the South Pole. Um, in fact, for about six months out of the year, you can't get there. Um, you can always get to the International Space Station. One, but I think that outer space is going to look very similar to Antarctica. You get all these countries going down there making claims. From you know the 1900s to the 1950s, 1900s, 1950s, they have, and there is a space treaty. Don't get me wrong, there's a space treaty, um, but treaties don't mean anything until they actually have to be enforced. I think that, I think we can all agree with that. Um, no agreements. Yeah, um, say that to the uh, the non-aggression pack. <laughs> Pax sunt servanda. Agreements must be kept. When Antarctica started, it's you know had its first major treaty. Um, you know, it was a factor of what they did is instead of dissolving all rights to land, they actually suspended the rights to land by all these countries claimed. And over the course of years, it's developed more and more of a communal style. Um, you know, Antarctica, Antarctica has its own dialect. Um, they actually use it to study like isolated speech patterns. Uh, um, it's, it's fascinating that like, you know what I mean, you spend... Uh, I don't know what. How long does one person does a person spend in Antarctica at one time? Do you think? What's the, what's, what are the stretches that you do in Antarctica? So you can spend like three weeks in Antarctica during the summer. Uh -huh. uh, that would be their summer, our winter. We're the northern hemisphere. Northern hemisphere. If you want to sponsor this podcast, <laughs> so when you have blue ice runways, you can land a lot of stuff and get in there. Um, so you can stay there three weeks, ninety days, but the overnighters, I think it's like six to seven months. Eight or nine people stay at the South Pole. They actually get to um, design the, the 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 magnetic North Pole changes every year. They actually get to design the new uh, brass piece that goes where the magnetic North Pole is. There are a few things like I'm a weird guy when it comes to collecting stuff. Like I could care less about autographed sports memorabilia as I'm sitting in a room that I think has autographed sports memorabilia around it. Yeah, um, of a popular football team unnamed unless you want to sponsor. <laughs> Hit us uh, up uh, over there, but as soon, yeah, as soon as as soon as you we get some sponsorship dollars, we'll be touting your name because of course you need our publicity, uh, major professional football team. But yes, you do have some sports memorabilia. <laughs> um, I would pay so much money for one of the South 
the uh, magnetic south pole markers. I think that'd be one of the coolest things to collect. Imagine having a paperweight on your desk. Where did that from? Oh, it's, it's what marked the south pole. Like, oh, damn. Yeah, that's a, you know, that's a, that's a great little token right there, you know? So when we, when we look at like that isolation, it's just, it's absolutely crazy. And we don't even see that in space. It does bring up a funny thing that like, I believe there's going to be a space dialogue at some point. Oh, for sure. I mean, I think that that's one of the many inevitabilities. Space exploration itself appears to be an inevitability. I mean, obviously, it's something that's. I shouldn't say. It's already there's already entries into into outer space, so obviously uh, it, that I, you can speak about refer to it in past tense. But continued space exploration just seems to be one of these things that is an inevitability. So there's going to be many other inevitabilities that are attached to it. Dialect, culture, um, you know, enterprise. All, every, 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 um, every human institution is going to have a manifestation that's going to be space-themed. So, you know, I, mean? I, I don't know if it's going to be all chrome and silver doors and, like, airlocks and whatever. But, but uh, yeah, there's going to be, it's going to look, it's, it's going to, in some ways, parallel our world and in other ways diverge. I think... You know, as we go down through this podcast and as we develop more, we're going to talk more about these things. This space dialects, we're going to talk about... Space dialects? Uh, <laughs> I, I we'll probably try and do our best impressions based on, like, corny, Pulp Fiction-y, like, uh, or, like, ser- radio sounds, serial shows. Like, sounds like a guy on a Pluto Nash. <laughs> right, right. I uh, look at characters on Pluto Nash and, like, uh, and, like and, uh, that Bruce Willis movie. Uh, um, Armageddon? Yes, thank you. Is that was that the movie? No, choice. <laughs> uh, but you know we're going to cover a lot of these topics as we go forward. So I don't want to begrudge the point, and uh, I do love the idea that we have Antarctica as this great science frontier that has similar time cost prohibitive measures and certainly not as expensive, but it's certainly not hostile cheap to send that. Exactly hostile environment. Uh, but I think that's a good metaphor for, you know, this stage where we're at with manned space flight. And, you know, it's exciting. I think you and I both agree that's exciting that we're getting back in here. And I think it's, it's a point of national pride, worldly pride, um, that we can take these adventures into space. And though we, you know, we're a bunch of diverse, you know, upright apes walking around this planet, that we both share, like, that human achievement factor. Um, you know, so kind of closing this, closing this, topic out uh here i'm gonna pose a question to you all right would today's current standards not 20 30 40 80 years from now would you be a space tourist yes and i'll say that uh if the uh, so i would sooner be a space tourist than i think um than like a a a, a space immigrant you know like i i would that's you want to stick your, stick your toes in the water oh absolutely i would totally and then if you can if you can have that luxury, of course you you have to take it, um, and that that I feel like that luxury is is more closely on the horizon. It's more deliverable at, at our at, at current expectations. Space tourism. Yeah, I think that that's that's the first that's that's like the first area of industry that is uh, that's on the horizon. It's the first one we're probably going to be hitting, unless there's some others that I'm I'm not thinking of, like uh, some some infrastructure things that, that are required. But. It is going to be weird you think about it, because usually when you talk, you know, if we're going to draw parallels to colonization, usually it's, you get over there, you find somebody else's land, 
with resources with resources and, uh, the unfortunate story of of human history uh, the, of imperialism or, or you know how you how you want to see it but the um but yeah that and and, and that natural parallel there's that one element that's devoid in that when you know when the ships from europe sailed across the americas there was forests and rivers for right. fish waiting for them and um there's beautiful dust in outer space yeah. that we've seen so far and yeah exactly but usually it wasn't like you know the mayflower come over here and then somebody like a year later is like yeah do what let's go take a vacation in plymouth all right but you're gonna get that in space like it's already been space tourists like if you look at the time period between the first space tourist in the beginning of uh we got space travel it is crazy short compared to like the first you know person landing in the plymouth colony the roanoke or jamestown and you know the aristocrat who was like do you know what gonna spend a little time in roanoke right uh tocqueville maybe like after the <laughs> revolution like i have no idea like <laughs> you know from like whatever uh the Jamestown settlements to like after the revolution. Like, I, don't, I don't know who many, how many people were taking flights of fancy, and by flights I mean long boat rides to to the Americas. Like, Maybe there is history though. Do you know what's crazy to me? Like Petriac, who was the first like tourist. We think of tourists. I think it was like early Renaissance, like mid thirteen hundreds. Hmm. Okay, I don't believe he's the first tourist. Like I mean, but he's the first tourist we have like good writings about. Like he wasn't traveling for work. He was traveling just to explore. Yeah. Um, he wasn't, there wasn't an economic incentive or business incentive. Because, I mean, let's be honest, like, look at the Mali civilization. Like, so far before Patriarch, were they exploring the world? You know, the Vikings, the Romans. But the first dude who's like, do you know what? Gonna take a holiday. Mm-hmm. Um, first off, that must be really weird to people. Like, hey, so what do you do? I'm just gonna uh, go, to, uh, go to the Far East. Oh, for trade? Nope. Mercenary? Nope. Oh, you're going to be buying and selling things or moving there? No, I plan on coming back. All right, yeah, fun, man. Um, so I like to think it took us, like, you know, we, we settled, the, you know, in the Indus River, in the uh, Sumerian River Valley in Egypt. What, like, in Jer- okay, let's go to Jericho. It's like 10, 12,000 years ago. So it took, like, 10,000 years, 9,300 years, where somebody was like, I'm going to travel for fun. And now we got people literally leaving Earth to trap for space tour, for, um, for tourism standpoint. No, I got the Instagram likes. Oh, oh there's going to be a space tour. Ooh, space seeing... influencers? Oh, for sure. There's going to be space, space influencers are on the horizon. We are getting towards the end of the show, but I'm here. I got I to gotta, space, space influencers. I need your take on that now. If, if, you know, not only are we looking for advertisers on this podcast, I personally am looking to be a space influencer, <laughs> not NASA. So I will... You can doll me up however you want. I'll wear a leather jacket. Yeah, space influencers are right on the horizon, and I want to be one, and I want to get in on that action early, because that's how you get all. That's how you get all those great like. And that's what's you know what that's that's what's kind of sad about it in a way. If there's anything that is kind of sad, what what I think will be largely positive or just it's tough to measure with like a chapter in human history. Some things in human history are difficult to measure just in po- in positive binary terms, positive or negative. Now, like the pri- the private individuals and uh, exploring space, like will that be positive or negative? I I look at it optimistically and think overall it will be. But some other people might say that it fundamentally changes who we are, and it will fundamentally change who we are if it changes where we are, where we are from, uh, potentially. But uh, that's one of the things about the privatization of space that's going to be kind of weird is that there are going to be some people, like there's going to be space influencers who 
it's it's just gonna be a job for them. Like, like that there are gonna be passionate ones, and then there are gonna be those people that are really just trying to sell sell jackets. You mean you're gonna have the hue space right. influencer who's all about space, but you know he wants to make a little cash on no, the side. No, let's be honest. I I would be the most rapacious space influencer <laughs> there is, and I would I would sell my soul to be a space influencer <laughs> so quickly. You're gonna, when I'm in space, what do I trust? Space glasses, space goggles. <laughs> right. Of course, I love that all the trademarks are the most like obvious like space plus word. <laughs> like, yeah, I mean, they're not as cool to do like you know astro plus a word. I mean, that is, that's, that is, yeah, that's true. Yeah, yeah, that's good. That's reserved for the that's, real, the real yeah. big guys in here. That, that's like calling a robot a cyborg. Like, <laughs> graduated. Wait, is it a cyborg? Like, no, no. What's the astro for space instead of just space? That's incredible. Starnomics. Oh, why do we call the show Starnomics? That's a huge letdown. Um, no, uh, I'm out on space tourism. I love space. I love talking about the economy of space. I love talking about business, legal, all this stuff to the point that we started a podcast on this. Um, You've been listening for a while. Yeah, I mean, thank, thank you for coming this far. We really appreciate it all. But probably the three of you and my mom who's left on this out on space tourism. Eric would not be a space tourist. I hate heights. Just, I have no other rationale. They're nice in the abstract. Yeah. Talking them from safe ground. I would be huge social media space influencer, um, coordinator from earth. Um, I have no intention. If I could never walk up a flight of stairs in my life, I would take that. If the world is completely flat. Uh, No, 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 not flat. It's something flat earthers. Light up my comments and DMs. <laughs> the flat earthers thing. That's another weird. That's going to be another weird strain of like, you're going to have people that think all the space influencers are lying. The space influencers would never lie to you. Never lie to you. We will never lie to you for advertisement dollars. <laughs> uh, do you want a crazy fact? Or another crazy fact. Do you know the world is smoother than a cue ball? Like that you play pool with? Um, I don't know how that's measured. Like, I guess pro- the only word I have for it is proportion. Yes, in the exactly. sense that if I was a speck of dust compared to, uh, so small as compared to my physical body is to Earth, that the mountains on the cue ball and their imperfections would be of a lesser height than the uh, than the mountains are on Earth would be of a greater height than the mountains are on Earth. If I was proportionally. Yeah. Way. Exactly. So. The governing body for billiard sports. Mm. They define how smooth a cue ball has to be mm. by the deviation from um, a you know a fixed circumference of the ball. Mm-hmm. And that is more the variation that's allowed is greater than that between like the earth and uh, the t- and Mount Everest or the Mariana Trench. That's fascinating because I always heard So my favorite random fact. That's yeah, that's weird. Um Way to go, you smooth, smooth, round earth, you know? That's, it that's is, awesome. yes, as you can see, the globe in the corner of, of our studio. Oh, yeah, that's so, and it's, it's, it's fixed in a nice, uh, old-timey, like, railroady way. Like, gilded, agey-looking uh, globe in the corner of the room, which I have not paid much attention to until now. It has a, a fine maple finish uh, around the wood, and it's tilted on its axle, it's exactly 23 and a half degrees tilt, too. Only a person hell-bent on world, <laughs> world conquest would own one bit what this is here. And this- Thank you.
Thank you for listening to this episode of Astronomics. I'm Eric, and as always, I was joined with my co-host, Hugh. We encourage all listeners to reach out to us and to leave us questions. You can reach the show at astro-nomics.com. That's A-S-T-R-O-N-O-M-I-C-S dot com. Thank you. We look forward to hearing from you.